past few weeks, we have been challenged by the portrait of the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. The cream of the crop among Israel's young men was instructed in the ways of moral wisdom at the king's court. That instruction ends with a poem teaching young men to discern the virtues of the ideal woman and thus to choose a wife who will do them good and not evil. And as this book comes to an end, there is, of course, a message for each one of us in our unique lots in life to consider the ideal person from God's perspective, in this case, the excellent wife. The ancient Greek philosopher Socrates said, by all means, get a wife. If she is a good wife, you will be happy. If she is a bad wife, you will become a philosopher. (laughs) Well, it's no joking matter that the grand finale of the book of Proverbs sings the praises of a certain kind of woman. One that would certainly make a godly man happy. As these young men at the king's court learn to live with moral skill themselves, they simply must understand how their relationship with a woman may either profoundly help them or irreparably harm them on life's journey. Part of the moral skill that they were to develop was the capacity to appreciate what they should appreciate in a wife. This description of the excellent wife that closes out the book of Proverbs stands in stark contrast to another kind of woman who makes several appearances in the book. She is a woman young men must learn to avoid at all costs. The one to seek, the one to appreciate, and the other to avoid. And as with the excellent wife, so here there is a specific response that each one of us should make in light of this divine instruction. But before we take a close look at this other kind of woman, I think it is important first that we stake some broad biblical principles regarding human sexuality. We're not going to defend these from Scripture. I'm calling upon your understanding, your knowledge of Scripture, but let's stake them here that could be defended at length. First, God created marriage to be a covenant of physical and spiritual union between one man and one woman for life. This was God's creative design. Secondly, sexual activity is restricted to married couples, to those that have the cover of that union, spiritually and physically, covenanted to one another, living in fidelity with one another. That is the only place where such activity is appropriate in the Creator's design. Thirdly, God's law concerning sexual fidelity within marriage is of extreme importance. This is not a marginal doctrine. This is not something that some people in the past who just were fairly prudish and puritanical, as the word is used and very much misapplied, that they came up with somewhere along the line. It's really not that big of a deal when it comes to God's view. Jesus thought it was a big deal. He said of not only physical adultery, but of lust, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Speaking to get our attention, certainly, but are you going to say in light of what Jesus' teaching is there that this is a minor issue? Tear your eye out if it offends you. He's getting our attention, Matthew 5, 29. And Paul admonishes the Corinthians with speech that is somewhat mysterious. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's a big deal. And we must strive to get it right. And with these broad stroke principles in place, we look today to Proverbs chapter 5. I encourage you to turn there in your Bible. If you will, Proverbs 5 reveals vital wisdom concerning sexual satisfaction. Vital wisdom given to each one of us in our unique lot in life to be applied uniquely and understood culturally within our own secular culture and within the culture of our personal homes. This instruction in Proverbs 5 starts with a call to heed wisdom in verses 1 and 2. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. God our Father looks earnestly into our eyes here and He pleads that we listen to His counsel, turning off the siren cry of the world's wisdom. Notice in verse 2 that part of the strategy for sexual purity is not only listening with the ear, but for a man is to have right lips, lips that guard the truth of God. I think only when a young man can courageously articulate a godly answer to the temptress is he ready to stand. And this, of course, is true of women as well. We need to have a right answer in place. We we can't miss here or find any better illustration than Joseph in Potiphar's house. He didn't run first. There was the temptation on the part of Potiphar's wife to come to him, to come to her. And what does... Joseph say, I cannot do this against my master, and I cannot do this against my God. His lips were trained to keep truth and to honor the Lord's plan. But this word lips now springboards into the teacher's wisdom concerning sexual seduction. And we need to hone in here and consider this carefully. At verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. We have first of all to consider here this forbidden woman. The Hebrew text speaks of a woman who is estranged or who is a stranger. Sometimes the word is translated. In this context, she is a stranger to, that is she stands outside of this young man's legitimate circle of intimacy. She also has clearly become estranged from God and her husband. She is, as the ESV puts it, a forbidden woman. A woman where there's no right for you to be involved. And I think we would apply this across the board to any sexual solicitation from anyone or anything other than one's mate. Now in the context of Israeli culture, young unmarried women were guarded judiciously. They were watched, and it was very difficult for an unmarried woman to be involved sexually in that culture. It was almost unheard of. 
be thinking. Our culture is obviously quite different. Sexual infidelity was usually committed with a married woman. This was the source of the sexual temptation of that time. Today, obviously, temptation to sexual immorality casts a much wider net. There are all kinds of opportunities. There are all kinds of places where this temptation can be found in person and in picture and in sound and all kinds of ways that they would have known nothing about. But the heart is the same in any culture. There was a temptation in their day that they needed to come to understand. They needed to realize that the solicitation may well come from a married woman who is walking outside of the plan of God, is being unfaithful to her husband, and very likely somewhat older than you, who will come up to you and with smooth speech is going to put a move on you that's hard to resist. Now we've got more work to do. We've got more plowing to do in this culture to be ready to resist at a lot of different levels. Where does a temptation come from? We need to be students of that temptation. Not to know everything there is to know about it, but to be prepared for it in this setting, in this culture, to be ready. What we must understand about this forbidden woman is that there is a beginning and an end. The beginning is very appealing, verse 3. Her lips are drip of honey and her speech is smoother than oil. There's a beauty there on the surface of things. Her speech indeed is mesmerizing, melting a young man's resistance. But, verse 4, there is an end. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. I've tasted wormwood tea. I have never forgotten the experience. It is bitter, beyond bitter, beyond description. But it is a root, and you can make a tea from it that will really curl your teeth. What starts as smooth as oil, the counselor says here, ends in a burning, bitter agony. A root that produces a bitter-tasting drink. What starts as smooth as oil ends in a burning agony akin to a penetrating sword wound, verse 4. Verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. So there's this beautiful approach, but it does not end well. Sheol, the realm of death, saying to us, I think that her way of life is a journey to death. Everything she does is in conflict with true life and wisdom. Verse 6 expands upon this point. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. She is lost and ignorant, having no interest in thinking about where her actions will lead her. On our way home this summer from Camp Clearwaters, Stillwater was busy with activity as they were having special days there. And as I was driving, I just noticed the, the gentleman's club on the way home there on the side of the road. There was one car in it, and a woman came out of that car kind of caught your attention, this big parking lot and just one car there. But she got out and she was dressed for the night. She was ready, or getting ready. And as she walked into that club alone, I thought, you know, I would suspect that woman has no idea what she's doing. She probably really doesn't begin to perceive the trouble. And 
all I saw was really her hair at that point, just where she was walking in, but it wasn't wearing the sign, stay away, I'm dangerous. It's very appealing. Everything about her would say, I am sure, come in and join the fun, not stay away, I'm dangerous. She is not going to resist you. She is not going to come with a label that says danger here. The Surgeon General's got to put labels on things to tell us it's dangerous to smoke, as if we need to be told that. But she doesn't come with any such labels on her forehead. She is not going to warn you. What you must know about her is her end is bitter. She's lost her way. Now, secondly, how you must respond to this seductress, we find in verses 7 to 14. This is what you need to know about her. Now the response. Verse 7, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Don't pull into the parking lot of the gentleman's club and start a conversation with her. Keep driving. Etc., 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 in so many ways of application. Sexual temptation is like a magnet. The closer you get, the stronger the pull and the weaker your resolve. The only answer is to steer clear. This is true in a date, on a date, at work, on the internet, on television, along the freeways, wherever it is, steer away from her path. Again, we think of Joseph who ran, and he was a hero because he ran. There's a time to get out. Always to avoid and to stay away. Don't get close to that magnetic pull. Avoid it. Stay away from it. The motivation for this response is spelled out in verses 9 through 14. Lest, you see the word lest, you are to avoid her, stay away from her, don't get involved with her because, verse 9, here's what is at stake. You will give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the, that is a stranger. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Illicit sex mercilessly steals from your soul, leaving nothing in return. Illicit sex tends to put your money in the pocket of others, whether that's in the pocket of a prostitute or in the purchase of pornography or in taking care of a pregnancy or in dealing with a sexual disease. It always has that tendency to pull money out of you and put it with someone else. There is indeed no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage. Sexual immorality drains the body and the wallet. It does not inspire. It does not build up. It simply exhausts. It secondly produces deep regret. Please understand, this is why you run because it will suck you dry, and secondly, it will produce deep regret, verse 12. And you say in the end, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This is the agonized cry of the sexually promiscuous. What have I done? Sexual temptation presents a powerful force offering inexplicable pleasures, but such pleasure is short-lived and soon gives way to deep regret. Know it. Understand this. Prepare for this as you resist. 
As verses 13 and 14 indicate, every one of us needs to listen carefully to this, I believe. Young people, couples, singles, listen. Do not end up here. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. I didn't open my ears to their instruction. And now I'm on the utter brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Don't end up there. It's a horrible place to be. Weeping alone in agony, crying out in the dark. What have I done? Why did I not listen to the voice of godly counsel? There's reference here to the assembled congregation, which might picture the public accounting for sexual sin before the village that such a man may need to endure. We need to hone in here and realize that we must not play the fool and think that because a sexual sin is committed in, in private, that you will never pay the price in public. No matter how secretive you may be, sexual sin has a way of revealing itself. And the thrill of one night of passion can never compare to the heart-wrenching shame of public accountability. Ask King David. There's a huge price that is paid. Don't go there. I think in application, in our, in our setting, in our culture, there is a high degree of anonymity. There are easy ways of keeping sexual sin out of the public eye, it would seem. But one thing that we are called to do as a church is to provide the assembly and the congregation to warn one another and to know that there is an accountability within our assembly that where such sin is revealed and made clear, that we will, by the grace of God, speak to it and speak against it and call a person back from the brink of ruin. Don't get there. Is that simply meant to motivate us with fear? Yes. In one right sense of the word. There is an appropriate fear to not have to deal publicly with what we shouldn't have to deal with. Be warned, be aware of it. And I say that not to intimidate in any way, but simply to say, have that reality there in your life and know that there is that resistance to the temptation that you may seek. Don't bring yourself there to where it becomes public. Now, in the grace of God, all of that is to be done in order to uh, extend forgiveness in order to draw a person back, in order to encourage one to seek the forgiveness of God and to receive the forgiveness of the people of God, certainly. But that is not where you want to go. Don't ever bring it to that place. And know that whatever is done secretly can someday end up in the public realm, and often does. We'll return to that theme in a moment. But the passage does not end here by merely creating a vacuum, does it? We must not commit sexual immorality, period. Let's go home. No, we must pursue something positive in its place. We must pursue what we could describe here in verses 15 to 23 as sexual satisfaction. 
wisdom concerning sexual satisfaction. The first line of argument here is that each one should drink exclusively from his own well, verses 15 to 17. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. We have here in verse 15 the moral imperative. In the ancient Near Eastern societies, there were two places to get water. It didn't come packaged in bottles. You had to go to the public well and draw water there, or you might have a source at your own place, but often something of a cistern, so that on a day like this, you could get some pure water that wasn't nearly as tainted by the environment as ours is today, or you could boil it, but you could get water at home by having a cistern that would collect the rainwater. It's obviously used as an analogy to refer to one's sexual relationship within marriage. The author uses this figure referring to that kind of intimacy. And the figure, I think, works fairly well. Wardlaw comments, the marriage union formed and maintained on right principles has ever been found a fountain of the purest and richest joy on this side of grace. On this side of the grace. Joy unmingled with guilty shame and that leaves behind it no tormenting sting. Now, he speaks, obviously, of a God-honoring marriage. Marital love is not immune from the ravages of sin. But sex under the umbrella of God's creative design is given for joy and procreation. And there is nothing but good in it. Joel Bells, in a World Magazine article some time ago, said so well, So what is sex about? Sex is about the ultimate delights of fidelity and the final joys of faithfulness. At its best, it is a mystical blending of the physical and the emotional rooted in trust, confidence, certainty, and security. It is two people saying to each other, I know everything about you inside and out. There is literally nothing between us. All is visible, and in spite of that, my faith in you is complete. Indeed, even what I don't know about you is also exciting precisely because our trust is so vital. Well, the rationale for pursuing such a relationship and enjoying it for the glory of God, verse 16 is given, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, and how we take that verse affects verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. The word translated should in verse 16 could be translated let and be a positive command, in which case it's probably talking about children. May the streams that run around in the, in the streets be your own children, not somebody else's children. Or if we take it negatively, as the ESV does, demanding a no answer, it's saying don't be stealing water at the public well. But be enjoying the wife of your youth. However we take that, each one should not only limit themselves there, but should satiate themselves at their own well. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son? with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. This strange woman, again the Hebrew. We are to enjoy God's gifts to us, not take them for granted, not become bored with them, not despise them, not fantasize about having some other gift that God has not given to us. Specifically, God wants married couples to experience a state of intoxication with one another. 
Now, I want to address those that are unmarried in our assembly and singles here momentarily. But I know at this point that might sound really good, sound really interesting. But as married people can tell you, it's, it is wonderful, but it takes considerable work. And there are there, its own challenges. God is not calling, I don't think, here married couples to try to conceive themselves in their own minds that there is no one on earth who is as attractive as their mate, just putting them up on a picture. And somehow this miraculous transformation takes place in your eyes and you can't see any beauty in anyone else. I don't think that's what he's saying, but I think the point is to understand and rejoice in the truth that the greatest sensual pleasure we can have on planet earth is that which takes place within the confines of marriage. There, it, isn't, it doesn't get any better than that there. Accordingly, we should be intoxicated with the body of our mate and only with that person. Now, to those who are single among us, those who would desire to be married right now, perhaps, to the widows who are among us, there might be a sense inside, I, I wish that I had a piece of that. I wish that I could pers- pers- have that in my life. Well, let me just very briefly say, first of all, please understand that you are not second-class citizens in God's thinking. He has not bypassed you with this good gift that he has given to others. Don't look at it that way. That would be wrong and send you down a wrong path. Indeed, I think as you look at life in that perspective, the goal is to build up your own soul and who you are and become the person that God wants you to be, not so as to get a mate, but to do that in such a way that you are pursuing the love of God. You have a unique opportunity to trust the grace and the power of God in your life, to see Him as your soul's satisfaction, to find ways to use your singleness for His glory, to use your position as a window to see the greatness of God and how trustworthy He is and what satisfaction He brings. Indeed, you have an opportunity to know God in a way that married couples cannot. Because you know what it is to lean on Him and Him alone. And to address His cause and His purposes with singular devotion. You have an inside track there that married couples don't. For those who have lost that joy in one way or another, Know that God is weaning all of us off of this life, bit by bit. He's preparing us for eternity where the true joy will be realized. I cannot explain it. I have not experienced it. I don't understand that. But many of us will who are married, who will lose a mate and come to that place in life where where that ripping takes place. We can know that our good God has a purpose in that as well to wean us off of dependence on this world and to prepare us for the joy of eternity. Trust his hand. Trust his heart. Why, in all of this, would you embrace adultery? We need to set aside pornography and fantasy. We need to set aside inattention within marriage or emotional, physical, and emotional distancing 
We need to set aside all flirtation. We need to set aside the sin and say, I will never go there. This moral call in verse 20, to avoid this at all cost, is supported now in verse 21. For, do not do that, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Simply put, God knows all. Even if sexual sin is somehow kept secret, God knows everything. We never, ever get away with his sin, with, with sin. As a radio teacher once put it, nobody is getting away with anything. This is the truth. No other soul on the planet may learn of a particular sin that you commit, but God knows. And the consistent dripping of that error in your life will slowly draw you away more and more. Don't ever buy the lie that any sin is secret. Every sin is a seed of death, and it will bear its bitter fruit. God's mercy is there, and we praise Him for it. But we need to remember how devastating sin is. Verse 22, it, God knows all. Secondly, sin ensnares. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. It's not getting caught that ensnares us. It is the sin that ensnares us. Many times it's just the grace of God that there is somebody who discerns something that we're doing what's wrong. But even if that is not there, the sin is ensnaring. It needs to be, those cords need to be cut and put to death. And then sin leads ultimately to a wayward path. It leads us astray. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. God knows sin ensnares and sin leads astray. Our culture treats sex outside of marriage as entertainment, as freedom of expression, freedom of our humanity, or expression of our humanity. In reality, the indiscipline of sexual infidelity forms a certain path to spiritual ruin. Be aware of it. Know it. Know how to address it. God makes clear some things that we know that are clear to us that we've heard before that sexuality is only for marriage. That is the Creator's design. That is our Father's counsel to us. That creates for every one of us along different lines a tremendous challenge. But consider that purity is like a beautiful vase on a ledge. Make sure it stays there. Don't throw rocks at it. Don't jump up and down on the ground and shake the room. Let it sit there in its beauty and in its purity in whatever situation you are in and wait on God. Wait on His time. Be patient. Rest. And for those that have that joy of marriage at this short season in their life. This doesn't last through eternity. And it doesn't last all that long down here. Drink from your own well and actively satiate yourself there. This is a moral responsibility. It's a calling from God to know that pleasure, to pursue it, in order that all of us, in whatever lot we are in in life, will bring glory to our Creator.
Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, I pray that you would preserve this assembly from disaster along these moral lines, that you will please protect us. I ask that you'll do a work in my heart to preserve me, to ward me off and to fence me in to the beauty of your plan. I pray that we would not stumble and fall. I pray, God, that if there is someone where the internet or some other form of the media is dragging them down, that they would realize that it's killing them and that they would stop. God, free them from this bondage. I pray if there, is, there are wandering affections in the hearts of any of our married couples, Lord, that you'd squash it. That you would help them here and now to seek you. That at this decisive moment, that they would turn in faith and say, God, there are raging desires in my heart, but I will follow you by your grace as you help me and supply the strength to do so. For our young people, I pray, God, that even now in prayer, there would be prayers that are rising and commitments that are being made, not in the flesh, but in dependence upon your grace, that they would say that I will remain faithful to my mate who I've not even probably met. God, help them to make this decision to go down this path and to walk with you as they strive to be faithful. I pray for those that are in bitterness of soul because of some unfaithfulness in their life or because of the loss of such joy or because of the deep desire for marriage that eludes them. God, we all come with our challenges and our trials uniquely, but I plead that you'd put your arms around those who suffer, those who hurt, God, in your mercy, that you'd build them up and let them know that there is here a family and that there is in Jesus Christ a source of great joy and satisfaction. We need to learn this little by little. We don't see it as we ought, but God, help us to see it uniquely here in this moment. Do a work through your Spirit and draw us to yourself. If there is someone that is out of counsel with you concerning their sin and their salvation, I pray that you'd show them the light of Christ crucified and risen and bring them to that light today. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.